0: This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Diring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Diring, professor of accounting at Duke University. And I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, tax museum curator and professor extraordinaire, Jeffrey L. Hoops at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. What's going on in the tax museum today?
1: Nothing. It's a very, we have just a few dozen visitors at the time, so it's pretty, pretty lonely here in the tax museum. So it's, it's a
0: very normal day in the tax museum. Nobody's there except for Jeff. Except for me, I guess, yeah. And some uh, invisible ghostly visitors. Yeah,
1: something like that.
0: Okay. Well, Jeff, what do we have on on tap today? Yeah,
1: so today we have with us Brian Alprin uh, to uh, talk, chat about sellable tax credits and tax credit markets. So Brian, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Brian Alprin. I'm the Managing Director of Renewable Energy and Sustainable Technologies at and Company. Uh, we're, we're an investment firm that specializes in tax credits. So we, we help large corporations primarily participate in these tax credit markets.
1: So when you say Foss and companies, so I, I, before we met, I vaguely think I'd heard of Foss, like how big is Foss and companies? It's like dozens of people, hundreds of people, thousands of people. Tell us a little bit about Foss.
2: So we're about 45 people. Um, but we have been around a long time. We've been around 40 years just celebrating our our 40 year anniversary um, we were, we we're small for a lot of our history, but we've been we've been growing rapidly for the last few years as um, the firm has been expanding into some new you know tax credit markets. Which uh, and so I've been leading the the growth on the renewable energy side.
1: Okay, so so you mentioned you are in the tax credit market. first of all, uh, remind us what a tax credit is, and then some examples of the tax credits you deal with, and then we'll go ahead and get into like uh, selling them and how that works.
2: Yeah, sure. So a Tax credit is essentially a provision that reduces a taxpayer's final tax bill on a dollar for dollar basis. So it's a bit different than a deduction or an exemption, which reduce your taxable income. This is an actual you know, direct reduction in your, in your tax bill. Um, so the types of tax credits we focus on are really any tax credit that's, that's inter- interesting for an institutional investor. Um, you know, Like I said, renewable energy tax credits have been very popular lately. Uh, We also do a lot in the real estate space, Uh, not not as much affordable housing tax credits. That that, that tax credit has become very popular with banks for reasons other than just tax. They they do those for what's called Community Reinvestment Act credits. They get sort of kudos points from the regulators for participating in that market. Um, We do a lot of historic tax credits, which is the preservation and rehabilitation of historic buildings. Uh, And then we also broker state tax credits around the country. We have something like 35 active funds in different states where we're brokering state credits.
0: Okay. So I have a couple questions about what you just said there. This is um, already like lots of things popping up. One thing you said is we deal. So, so, okay, let's back up. Everybody hopefully knows what you just said is really important. A credit reduces your tax bill dollar for dollar as opposed to a deduction, which just lowers your income and then saves you whatever your tax rate is. So credits are amazing because they give you like bigger tax bills. And then you say you basically deal in credits that are interesting to institutional investors. What makes a credit interesting to an institutional investor?
2: Well, you know, I mean, there's the obvious sort of risk and return, right? So is the, is is it a a low risk tax credit Um, and is, are they able to get it at a price that is, you know, interesting in terms of what that implies as a return. Um, But you also need scale, you know, so if there there's some credits out there where a state might set up a program and they say, we're gonna do $300,000 a year of these credits or something like that. That's, you know, for an institutional investor, just doesn't move the needle. So they're looking for, um, you know, markets where they can deploy large dollars in a low risk fashion um, and, and generate, you know, some kind of positive return that's attractive. So, um, you know, for example, renewable energy, it's uncapped, unlimited tax credit. So there's, you know, billions of dollars a year of these credits, um, pretty low risk uh, from our perspective. And, you know, can be very high returns.
0: Talk, talk about the things that create risk. Is this like, are you talking like regulatory risk? Is this like the government might change its mind? Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about?
1: And I also, with with one is, let's pick a very specific tax credit. So like, tell us about a very specific tax credit, exactly what you have to do to earn it, and then tell us about like why there would be risk in that.
2: Yeah. So let's use, let's use solar tax credits, the investment ITC, investment tax credit, um, as an example, um, which is, you know, we've, we've done a lot of those over the years. So the, you know, one of the things that's attractive about these ITCs for solar and some other renewable energy property is it's the last federal tax credit. that's a one-year credit, meaning you, you get your credit all up front the first year. So as opposed to many of the real estate credits, you get, you get a stream of credits over time, but the, the, uh, you know, the returns on an IRR basis for these can be like, you know, infinite because you're, you're getting your credit basically instantly up front. The, the risks involved, you know, traditionally the IRS, you know, in order to be eligible for these tax credits, they, they wanted you to be a true partner in the deal and have a certain amount of risk. Um, so, you know, to be respected as, as a true partner in the deal, essentially you have some upside and downside in the, in the actual solar project itself. So you're not just buying a tax credit. Um, you are Investing in a in a renewable energy project that's generating tax credits, and you actually have some amount of risk in that deal. So that that's the type of risk we're talking about. And so a lot of what we're doing is structuring these transactions so that they're taking the right amount of risk to be eligible for the credit, but also mitigating risk where we can. And you know you end up with, and then also optimizing for the tax benefits. So in general, you know, on, on risks on a on a you know solar power plant. A lot of the risk is development and construction, you know, getting to the point where it's actually operating. We're generally not taking that risk. We're generally putting our first dollars in when it's built, um, but uh, so we'll, we'll typically in a, in, a, in a common structure, we might be putting in 20% of our money once the project is reaches what's called mechanical completion, which means that it's, it's physically built, the panels are out in the field somewhere, you can have an engineer go tell you that it was built, as designed. Do we have that money at risk? For a period of time before the project is actually turned on and fully operational. And that's that's by design. The IRS wants us to have that 20% in. Um, once it's fully turned on, operational, synchronized with the grid and generating electricity, that's generally when the tax credit itself is generated. So tax credit gets generated. Um, that's the majority of our return as we get allocated that tax credit. We then sometime soon thereafter put in the remainder of our capital, the other 80%. <coughs> Um, the IRS requires us to stay in the deal for at least five years, which is a five-year compliance period. During that five years, we're receiving depreciation benefits. But we're also receiving um, a small amount of cash flow in the form of what we call a preferred return. So essentially a, a priority position in the cash waterfall over the five-year period. And then after the five years, we, we exit. And so we have a you know, sort of pre-negotiated exit Um, So those those are kind of the the pieces of return. It's primarily a tax credit. We're also getting depreciation benefits, cash flow, and then a buyout at exit. Okay. So,
0: so so will you help me understand the, uh, all of the different parties to this deal? Okay. So there is, there is somebody who has a lot of income that they want to, uh, that that they're going to have to pay a lot of tax on, but they want to get rid of the tax. So that's why the tax credits are appealing to them. And that's the, the entity that you're talking about here, where you're going to help them, right? That's the institution. Okay, they're a partnership. They're they're in a in this deal with other entities. I'm presuming there's going to be some somebody who is actually kind of heading up the manufacturer of the 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 facility, the the solar facility or whatever it happens to be. Like, who else is involved? What other entities are involved?
2: So generally, you have a group. Um, we would call the developer that is that is the one leading the development construction of of the um, of the project. Now you know they're probably subcontracting um, a lot of that, but they're they're generally leading that. Um, there's they may be the long term owner of that project, or they might be selling it to say a private equity company or some other kind of long term sponsor. But somebody is going to be the long term owner of that project, and they they are the ones that generally are our partner. Um, in this partnership where, you know, once the project reaches construction completion, uh, you know, we're, we're in a partnership with whoever that long-term owner is going to be They're in the deal. Usually these like solar projects, you know, has a 30 year life. And so we're only in it for the first five or six years they're in it, um, longer. So we might be getting a lot of the economics in those early years, but they're really, you know, building a portfolio of these longer term assets.
0: And why don't they want the credits?
2: So, so with uh, a lot of these development shops and even these these long term owner sponsors, they just don't have enough tax liability for the project, the amount of projects they want to build. You're talking about you know lots and lots of tax credits being generated by these these projects, um, and so they end up. Yeah, I mean, certainly they they often take a little bit to to manage their own tax liabilities, but it's a small fraction of the overall portfolio they're trying to build. They quickly run out of tax liability, and so there are some. Developers out there that are, you know, what we call tax efficient, where maybe they have an owner that has a significant tax liability, and they just kind of absorb those internally. But the majority of the developers in the country, you know sort of like real estate developers, they don't, they they have a lot of other, you know, tax benefits, um, and so they're they're not paying a whole lot of taxes relative to the amount of projects they want to build. So is it
1: is it just a, a mismatch in timing, in that they eventually will have the tax liability over the thirty years as they collect, you know, money from the electricity that they're selling? And that the tax credit all comes in year one, the income's over thirty years, and because of that timing mismatch, it's just kind of a time value money question. Was it really the case that the credits would offset all of the income that will ever be generated? <coughs> excuse me, ever be generated from the solar farm?
2: I suppose you could say it's a timing mismatch, but I mean, it's also a, a space of rapid growth, right? So, so there, there, you know, if you think about that portfolio that they may own that's generating income. Um, the, Usually that income level is, you know, relatively small for the the, the growth of the amount of projects that they're trying to build the next year. So, you know, they they could use a little bit, but um, because the space has been growing so rapidly, I think, you know, a lot of these groups don't have huge operating portfolios relative to the amount of new construction they're trying to do.
0: Okay. So when we think about these different parties, there's like the developer... There is the investor that has a lot of tax liability that they want to offset. There's going to be like the end consumer who consumes electricity that comes from the solar, you know, project, whatever it is, who's better off because of these tax credits? Like does the the rich investor, are they winning because they have a lower tax liability or is it just a way for the developer to attract cheaper financing, which then makes the developer better off because they got cheaper financing? or are all of those savings ultimately passed on to like the you know uh, end user who buys electricity who now gets to buy electricity for a lower price than they otherwise would have? Do you have any feel for that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think all parties win to some extent. you know I would say that this is a government subsidy. Into, a, into programs where you know the government is looking to help stand up some of these newer technologies, help promote growth in these industries um, rather than just providing cash grants, which we've seen. so there was what was called the 1603 grant, which um, the Obama administration rolled out for renewable energy when there's you know we had a recession and so there was a fear that in a recession there's not going to be as much tax liability, and so these tax credit markets would freeze. So they came out with a cash grant system and, you know, it was effective in keeping the market moving, but it also created situations where you, you know, I think you have a a higher risk of fraud when you don't have a sort of third party private sector, like large corporation involved kind of clearing the market. So the the reason the government likes these these tax credit programs in part is it, it makes their capital more efficient, you know, in terms of you've got a... You're putting the private sector to work in due diligence in these projects and making sure these developers are being honest about the costs involved, et cetera, um, because you know, ultimately that, that corporation is taking some amount of risk. I think there's also a political factor where it's easier politically to have a tax credit um, than to have a, a grant that's going to be an expense on a, on a budget somewhere. Um, it's easier to you know politically sell revenue that you never receive versus an expense. So it, it has been a favored way for the government to subsidize some of these markets. Um, so then what does that mean? That means that one for developers, um, you know, they, they do have to jump through some hoops in order to monetize that subsidy because they may not have the tax liability themselves, but it ultimately is a huge you know, subsidy for their projects. And so it allows, um, you know, pretty much every renewable energy project in the country is reliant on, on these subsidies in order to be economically viable. Um, so, and who then, hires you, know, you
0: guys? Does the developer hire you? Is that like where do you come into this?
2: So you know there's there's different types of advisors and brokers in the market generally we we are investor representatives so if you're if you're a large corporation, you know there are there are some out there that have decided to build their own teams. Um, you know very large banks might have fifty person teams that just invest in tax credits. Um, but a lot of corporates and, and, even large banks and insurance companies don't necessarily want to have their own internal dedicated team for this. And so they'll go to a group like FOSS who's been in the market a long time, has a lot of experience, has a good pipeline of projects and, um, th- they'll, they'll rely on us to help them efficiently, you know, transact in that market. So typically we'll, what we'll do is we'll form a fund, they'll commit capital to that fund. And then we act as the manager of that fund in, in investing in projects that that generate tax credits.
1: And so, how I mean, what the question that Scott asked a little while ago about like who's better off it all just depends on the price. So, how is the price determined?
0: You mean the price of the credit? The
1: price of the credits. Yeah. How much? How, I mean, it all it all comes down to like how much you have to pay to get access to those credits. How much investment does it take if you're going to get you know a, a, you know
0: if the bank's going to get a dollar of credit? How much does it have to pay for the dollar of credit? I would imagine a. Uh, I would imagine anything less than a dollar makes the bank better off.
1: Uh, so less uh, less transaction costs, which is cost, which is yes, literally exactly. Brian's job is to create, create
0: yeah. those <laughs> transaction costs. So let's say Brian gets ten cents, or no, I don't know. Maybe you should tell us how much do you get? That's what, that would be an interesting thing to learn.
2: Yeah, well, let, let me unpack it a little bit. So, so um, you know, in terms of first, what what are what what factors might play into the price? I think about it. You know, I, I was. Um, You know, economics major. So I think about, you know, what's the supply and demand of these, um, of these tax credits, right? So on the supply side of tax credits, you've got, um, how, I mean, how many tax credits are in the market is, is generally going to be, um, you know, a product of how many projects are being built in a year. Um, so, you know, that, that does fluctuate. And especially with things like COVID and supply chain disruption, we saw some years where projects were being delayed, et cetera. So you have a fluctuating supply of these tax credits. Um, and then on the, on the demand side, You have um, both the tax appetite of the investors that are participating in the market, but also, you know, sort of the the, um, risk appetite of these investors and what kind of returns they're demanding. So, you know, those two factors um, both come into play and we can see pricing swings within the market even within a year. Right. So at the beginning of the year, um, you know, maybe there's there's less investors in the market because they don't yet know what their tax liability is going to be for the year. They haven't really committed yet and all these you know um, developers are, are scrambling to get projects done quickly. Um, and then, you know, you get to the end of the year and all of a sudden there's not very many projects left in the market. And, but, you know, suddenly investors realize, oh, we had a way bigger tax liability than we thought we were going to be. We'd love to pick up some more credits. So you can have some, some, some fluctuations, um, you know, just based on those kind of fundamentals, but um, you yeah, know to give you an example for a solar tax credit in the, let's, let's talk about the kind of traditional before the IRA, before transferability, um, where you had to take some amount of risk in the project and you were picking up a certain amount of depreciation and cash flow, because you were getting those additional pieces like depreciation and cash flow, you were typically paying more than a dollar actually for a dollar tax credit. So you might be paying, you know, $1.10, $1.15, $1.20 for, um, for that dollar tax credits. And, and the price somewhat varied based on how much cash flow are you receiving and how much depreciation you're receiving. So they, we'd often talk in terms of what's your your ROI, your return on investment for that that tax credit when you factor in those other benefits. Um, so you know, I would say generally it, it ranges in terms of um, what segment of the market you're talking about, kind of risk level, etc. But we're, you know, I would say from high single digits to you know mid to high teens, even in terms of returns on on these projects, depending on kind of what segment of the market you're in and. Um, what what risk tolerance you have.
0: I see. So you're, you're really selling them a package deal. You're saying you're going to get a credit, which is worth, say, a dollar, and you're also going to get some depreciation deductions, which are worth however much those deductions are multiplied by your tax rate, which might be like 30 cents or something like that. And you're also going to get some cash flow, which is almost like a lease payment for the fact that you own a little slice of this project or something like that. Take all of that into account. You're going to pay X dollars for that, and you're going to get X plus somewhere between maybe say 10 and 15% in return.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a fair representation. And, and I said that was sort of pre-IRA because what the IRA has changed, the Inflation Reduction Act has changed, is for the first time with transferability, you no longer have to go into that more complicated partnership structure where you're getting depreciation and cash flow. You can now say, I just wanna buy the tax credit. And so in that world, um, yeah. Yes. You're probably buying it for a discount. You know, otherwise, why would you? So um, that
1: and that, and that literally just didn't exist before that transferability is completely new for all tax credits.
2: It is. It, it existed in a form in the state tax credit world, but this is the, you know, first time in recent history that it's existed for federal tax credits. Um, it's, it does have some limitations. I mean, so the, the, when the Build Back Better Act, the industry was pushing really hard for something called direct pay. And the idea there was developers would just be able to go to the government and get cash. Um, they wouldn't need the tax credit markets, um, so that didn't that didn't happen. What when? And, and I think the transferability was sort of like a middle ground that the government came up with of like, okay, we we recognize that the renewable energy industry has a lot of growth ahead of it, and there's a lot of tax credits that are going to be generated, and so we need some some way to bring new investors into the market to make sure we're supporting that growth, and so transferability was meant to. Uh, I think, you know, maybe make it easier to participate in this market and more attractive for some.
1: Now, did the the kinds of people who do what you do, if I was just guessing, I would guess they were against transferability. Is that true? Or were they for it? It seems like you probably have more people interested in participating in the market with transferability because it's easier. But at the same time, you'll need, need less legal and other types of help to make these projects work.
2: I mean, yeah, I don't know if I can speak for everyone. I could, I think my, my personal opinion is I'm very excited about it. Um, one, I you know, just as a you know person relatively early in the career that that is excited about the future growth of renewable energy industry, I think this is going to be transformative for helping drive the industry forward. Um, and you know, so maybe our business model changes slightly, but I think there will be lots of opportunity there in terms of our investor clients and you know our role to play in that transaction. There's still enough risk uh, that, you know, I, I mean, there, certainly there may be some more groups that, that want to go direct um, and, and, and don't need an advisor, but you're still subject to recapture risk on these tax credits, meaning the government could still call them back within that five-year compliance period. Because of that, you're still going to want to do your due diligence and make sure it's, you know, fundamentally like, a solid project. Um, so maybe, maybe it would be helpful if I, I talk about what could cause a recapture.
0: That would be helpful. Yeah. Tell us about that. So,
2: so, you know, recapture tax credits is essentially, if the government was to either claw back some of the tax credits or disallow some of the tax credits, um, in, in, so there's, you know, a a few things that could cause that if you were to, let's say, change ownership within the first five years, like I said, we have to hold the, the, you know, our investment for five years. If you were to sell your interest within that five year compliance period, you could trigger a, a partial recapture. It kind of steps down pro rata over the, over the five years. Um, so, what, you know, obviously, we're not going to voluntarily sell our interest. Um, and, and in the transfer credit world, you don't even have an interest. So, there's, we're, we're wait, awaiting some guidance from the IRS to figure out what that actually kind of means. But there is a risk of okay, what happens if, um, if there's bank debt on this project and the bank forecloses on the project? And so you have a forced ownership change. Uh, that could trigger a recapture. So part of what we do in these transactions is we negotiate with the bank what's called a forbearance agreement, where they they basically agree that during the five year compliance period, even if they're in default, they will not foreclose in a way that would cause recapture. Right. So so there's some like structural mitigants that we we put in place to protect against that. We also so another form of, of recapture could be if if the project ceases to uh, qualify as energy property during the five-year compliance period. So, let's say um, you built, you know, a big solar power plant on an island somewhere, and a hurricane comes and just completely destroys it, and they didn't have sufficient insurance in place to rebuild. You might have a recapture. So, so part of what we're doing is looking at those types of risks and and the insurance that they have in place, and making sure that they've got sufficient, you know, insurance and. In, in the current world, it's getting more expensive and more difficult sometimes to get that cataclysmic weather insurance. And so, you know, there are circumstances where we might pass on a deal because, hey, uh, you know, we're not we're not comfortable with a hail risk. that might come in and crack all these panels. I mean, you don't have that insurance. Um, there, there's also um, the risk of I mean, it could be outright fraud or just, um, you know, the the developer. uh Making a mistake, but there could be them overstating the amount of expenses of the project, right? So these these tax credits are based on, you know, for a solar ITC, thirty percent of project costs. What if they included some costs in there, you know, intentionally or unintentionally that weren't actually eligible? It's
0: interesting you bring that up because um, in the in the case I teach, which is not really a case, just some newspaper articles that I've rounded up about Solar City, which is now part of. Tesla. But my understanding from these newspaper articles is that Solar City, this was maybe six or seven years ago, and I think they still do it just under the umbrella of Tesla. They would go to people's homes, install the solar panels on the homes, but SolarCity city would still own the solar panels, and then the homeowner would pay lease payments to solar city. Solar City would get the depreciation deductions and they would get the tax credits. But because SolarCity didn't have any income, they would basically either get a third party person like what you're talking about or somehow bundle up all of these different solar panels. And then essentially they're selling off the credits in exactly the way that you're talking about to Wells Fargo or to whoever it is that you know needs the credits. But there is a study that exists, which is quite fascinating, which shows that the price of solar panels installed on the roof when SolarCity installs them is significantly higher than the price of solar panels installed on roofs when they're installed by a third party and owned by the homeowner, which suggests that Solar City is inflating the value of the solar panels um, so that they can get bigger tax credits so that they can sell them. And that's, I think, exactly what you're talking about. It's basically saying, yeah, as as the the developer has an incentive to keep the costs high because the credit is 30% of the cost. If the co- that makes the credits worth more, that lets them sell them for more. That creates like basically more money in this pot of tax gold that the parties get to split up in the contract. And I guess there's a risk that under audit or something that IRS could come in and say, actually, you, uh, you faked all of this. It's not that big. We're going to take some of it back. Is that what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I alluded to the sixteen oh three grant days with the cash grants when there was, you know, some questionable practices. Um, you know, I think an example of that is in the cost basis of the project, developers would include a developer fee, right? So you you'd say, Okay, part of the actual cost of the project is a fee to me. And um you know, which is, I think it, to a certain level is, is is reasonable. But then you have people that start pushing the envelope on like, how big of a developer fee can I include in that in the cost basis and still claim a tax credit on it?
0: Oh, but their their developer fees have got to be really, really big, right? I mean, huge tax credits. That's amazing.
2: <laughs>
1: got 30% markup on everything you do. Yeah, doing, right?
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so, so you had then some pushback on that. So the industry moved away from... That, that structure of including the developer fee, but they, they've they come up with an, uh, sort of an alternative structure, which we call a uh, step up of the tax rate amount. And essentially what they do is they take the, let's say it costs you hundred dollars to build the project. Um, you, you take that hundred dollar you know, cost and you, you know, essentially sell it to um, a, typically a, a joint venture that's you know maybe an affiliated development company and a long-term sponsor and you sell it at a price that's that's supported by an appraisal, uh, a fair market value appraisal, and maybe that appraisal says it's worth $120. Um, now you get to claim tax credits on 120 on not 100
0: And so the appraisal, I'm assuming, would be based somehow on the future cash flows that would be generated by the power that's generated through this solar project or something like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so you have situations, though, where, one, um, you know, It's 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 the IRS may argue that even though you got a third-party appraisal for 120, maybe some amount of that value wasn't actually eligible for ITCs. Even that even though maybe it truly is worth 120, some of that amount that value might be due to things like the contract value of your power purchase agreement, and maybe it's not really eligible for these ITCs. And the industry has continued, I think, to kind of push the boundaries on what that, what's an acceptable step up, right? So, um, you know, 120 or 30, you know, I, we've seen, we've seen 250. I mean, it's like, where, where is the, where's the boundary, right? And, and so sometimes we're, we're turning down deals on the basis of that, that risk. Um, we also, there is tax credit insurance out there, so you can get insurance on that specific risk. Um, so all that said though, that risk still exists in the transferable credit rule. And I think that in some ways it might, it might be a greater risk if there's potentially people are cutting corners in the due diligence and not paying as close of attention to these appraisals and the cost of these projects. You might see that, that, and, and I think that's unfortunate because these, these projects can be very low risk if done properly. And it's probably, you know, short sighted in the industry to, you know, if, if an, if an investor gets burned in a big way on this, it could really, you know, cause, um, a lot of the tax credit investors to exit the market. So, you know, we're really trying to help take investors into these low risk, properly structured projects. And so, and and there's still a demand for that, even in the the transferable credit world.
1: Uh, So I want to talk about one more thing. So, um, so you talked about the Inflation Reduction Act changed the nature of tax credits. Some of them are now transferable. You know, there's new credits that are now transferable, but it also did another thing, which is give us a new corporate level tax. So you have this corporate alternative minimum tax, the tax on book income. We, that's like one of Scott and I's favorite things to talk about. We talk about it all the time. So how did that come into play? It seems like there might be two different things. You have now more tax that you might want to offset with credits, which could change the market in that way. But also if you offset any tax with credits, if they're not an adjustment, then you might just have to pay that back because you are under the fifteen percent for the corporate alternative tax. So I guess the first question is, are most of these credits adjustments, such as you're not gonna just have to repay them anymore more? And then also what do you think it will do to the market for tax credits to have this kind of completely new tax?
2: Well, I mean, I'll caveat this by saying I'm, you know, not not a tax expert per se. So you should talk to your your accountants. Um, and and uh, you know, there's, I think it gets very complicated as you start to delve into this, and there is still some unknowns. But and by the way, they
0: need to talk to a real accountant, not Jeff or I, because we also don't know what we're talking about. But yeah. <laughs>
2: um, but you know, I think so. I look at it as. Um, you know, we, we have in the inflation reduction act there was a lot of things that are going to expand the amount of tax credits in the market and and the need for these these tax credit investors right so just just the existing technologies like solar had their tax credits significantly increased and extended and then you have whole new technologies that now qualify for tax credit like standalone battery storage um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure even things like you know nuclear um so they're in and, and carbon capture and, and green hydrogen the list goes on there's, there's a long list and so um, yeah, what was a twenty billion dollar industry, uh, approximately of, of tax credits a year? We're expecting will grow to one hundred fifty billion plus. Um, so that's a lot of growth
1: every every single year. Yeah. So how do you get from tw- the difference between twenty and one hundred and fifty? If I do my calculations correct, is one hundred and thirty. Mm-hmm. So one hundred and thirty per year. I thought that the Inflation Reduction Act scored. I mean, the spending side scored at like three hundred billion. So do you think that they? And actually, I've heard suggestions that this might be the case that they just way underestimated the amount of tax credits are going to get sold.
2: Yeah. I mean, this, this might be a controversial opinion, but I think so. Yeah.
1: But, but by like a lot, it could be that over the two year window, it's 300 as opposed to over the 10 year
2: window. I think some of these technologies, there's a ramp up period. Things like carbon capture, green hydrogen, nuclear, it'll take us a little while to get there. But within that 10 year window, I think we're going to get to that point where, you know, we're talking, you know, hundreds of billions of, a
0: year, a tax of A year, yeah. I mean, that's this is one of Jeff's one of Jeff's favorite things is to talk about scoring because I love it. he kind of thinks that the government when they score just sort of licks their finger. there's there's some and,
1: estimation, right? So oh, they literally just going to have to guess in like in, in 10 years, how popular is it going to be to build solar panels? Who yeah. on earth knows? Nobody but knows. To get that number, you have to, you have to have a guess.
0: Yeah. And sometimes the guesses are just kind of fairly wild guesses, which means that they can be off by like hundreds of billions of dollars over the
2: course of 10 years.
1: Which is, which is fascinating when we're writing the piece of legislation, it's so important to like make it revenue neutral, but like, who knows?
2: Yeah. Well, and the other thing, some of these tax credits are long term. So like something like a carbon capture plan is going to generate tax credits from the time it's completed for 12 years. So if you complete it in your 10, you still have a 12 year, um, you know, tail of tax credits into the future, but you're not, I don't know if you're necessarily, you know, recognizing all that on day one, uh, you know, so to speak in your scoring. Yeah. Um, I think some of yeah. that's
1: intentional. There are some of these things that are done over 11 or 12 years with the intention to keep them outside of the scoring window. So again, I, I distracted us from talking about the camp. So how are, how are these going to be used to manage camp liability?
2: Corporate alternative. Yeah. So, so, so what I was getting at is there's this massive growth in the, in the amount of tax rates. So you're going to need like new investors in this space if you're going to support that and not have a bottleneck. And so it, it seemed to me that like the, the 15% was almost intentional in like driving some new investors into the space. Um, you know, we have, uh, some of these investors were, you know, previous participants in the market that no longer were paying very much in taxes. So hadn't had sort of exited and all of a sudden they're going to come back in a big way because of this. So the, if we talk, we talk about the traditional sort of tax equity transaction pre IRA, like we said, where you get, you get tax credits, you get depreciation and you get cash flow in that scenario that's you know potentially if you're in in this um, cmT position that transaction may be interesting but it's maybe you you might have a slightly diluted interest in it because yes you get the tax credits and you can apply them but the depreciation might have limited value depending on your position so with the transferable credit though all you're doing is buying the tax credit and so you get um yeah i mean it's 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 a pretty clean way to just Address that a new tax liability you have potentially. Now, there are still some unanswered questions. For example, let's say, let's say you, you, there's $100 of tax credits and you buy it for $90. Um, Do you need to recognize income for that $10? And does that income then actually create tax liability if you're in a CNT position? So it might kind of dilute your return partially, which people, you know, there was a comment period with the irs and the argument is that wasn't the intention and maybe that'll get cleaned up but currently it seems that way so you know we're, we're awaiting some some further guidance on
0: but i mean but so so but jeff i i, I guess there's not that many companies that are even going to qualify for the corporate alternative it's like 80 or 90 tax, maybe right? 100 or it was
1: 150 yeah, 100. by the Treasury's estimate or whoever so i'm kind of
0: curious like when we think about your clientele
1: but they're big companies there's oh, not that totally many but get they're that. giant yeah. companies
0: yeah. No, I totally understand that, but I would imagine that the clientele is a lot is far larger, broader than just like the hundred biggest companies on the S and P five hundred. Is that or am I just imagining that?
2: <laughs> it, it, the market is interesting in that. Um, so of the of the twenty billion dollar market today, um, probably you know eighty percent of that is concentrated in a few companies participating in a big way. So you, you bring in a few more really big participants and, you know, you can double the market. Right. So I think that's um, yes, there's, there's, there's a lot of companies that might participate in the, in small amounts, but um, the market, you know, a lot of it is uh, a relatively small number of very large participants and that are deploying, you know, a billion dollars a year or more.
1: Right. So, okay. We're way over time, but we're just like learning so much stuff. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> I mean, would I if I was reading the ten Ks of these companies? Is this material enough that they're disclosing about this, or is it they're they're just saving all this money by buying these tax credits, and nobody knows about it unless you're part of the deal?
2: Yeah, check out check out Bank of America's ten K. They they actually have a really you know they they very specifically say our effective tax rate was this. And because of us participating in what, the, for a while they're calling them ESG tax credits, which I think they might have backed off of. But ESG <laughs> <laughs> tax credits, yes, it's but, amazing. But but they 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 they, um, they specifically then said, okay, uh, this you know our 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 effective tax rate is why and is you know significantly lower um, uh, because of that. And so that, that you know they, they've had that in their statement. So there are some companies that are very um, uh, you know transparent about it, and then there are others that um, try to remain very anonymous in their activities. Um, partially they see it as a competitive advantage. And so they don't necessarily want to signal to their competitors that they're, that are doing this. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we have some of both for sure. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Brian, we're, uh, we, we promised you 30 minutes and, uh, like we're at, we're, we're 40. So we, uh, we, we better, uh, we better wrap up here quickly, but, uh, thank you so much for your insights and for Explaining this to us, and uh, we appreciate you coming on to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thank you guys. I, I could talk about this all day, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to chat. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very excited about this, so um, excited to uh, spread the, the knowledge.
0: All right, well, I'm, uh, as always, Scott Diring, professor of accounting at Duke University, your host, and joined by my co host, Jeff Hoops, at the University of North Carolina, and our guest today has been Brian Alperin who is managing director of renewable energy and sustainable technologies at Foss and Company. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye.